So thank you for all of you who are here with us today. We're so glad that you could join us, whether you're here in person or whether you're online checking us out. And if by chance you are visiting for the first time or you're a guest here, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And uh, today we are in our series in Genesis. We began back in the fall, kind of took a little break during Christmas, and have jumped back into it as we have come into 2024. I should mention that as we go through Genesis, we're not going to be covering every verse. We're going to, we'd be in Genesis a long, long time if we went through every verse in the book. So we're just going to be touching on some of the more significant sections of Genesis. And so last week we were in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, talking about the story of Cain and Abel. This week we're going to jump ahead a little bit to chapter 6 and look at verses 1 through 8. And the title of the message today is Deserving of Judgment, But Saved by Grace. Cassius Marcellus Coolidge. It's probably not a name that many of us would recognize, but Cassius Marcellus Coolidge lived in the late 1800s to early 1900s, and he died in 1937 at the age of 93. And perhaps his most notable claim to fame was he was the artist who painted that classic artistic masterpiece, Dogs Playing Poker. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, But I bet somewhere out there, some of you at some point in your life have probably had that picture hanging somewhere in your house, basement, rec room, something. I've seen it enough times over my life to know that's probably the case. But whether you're familiar with dogs playing poker or not, you might not be familiar, and what most people probably wouldn't be aware is that Coolidge is also credited with inventing what are called cutouts or face cutouts. If you don't know what cutouts are, you can often find them in amusement parks or carnivals or other tourist attractions. And, you know, what they are is they're like a scene or characters, and the face of the character in the scene is cut out so that you can kind of go behind it and put your face in the picture and get a photo taken in that picture or scene. And just to give you an example, there's kind of an example. So these are like famous art masterpieces where you can put your face in the scene of these famous masterpieces. So as we come to our text for today in Genesis 6, 1 through 8, if we're going to really fully benefit from this passage of Scripture, I mean, if we're going to appreciate and lay hold of what it has to say to our lives today, Um, it's helpful to approach this passage like an amusement park cutout. A picture where we place our faces in the scene that is depicted in these verses. See, Genesis 6, 1 through 8 happened long, long ago in a land far, far away. And so we might be tempted to think that what we see in these verses, that it doesn't relate to us today. It's just part of an old Bible story from long ago. And while Genesis 6, 1 through 8, it is an older part of the ongoing story of God's 
promise to bring blessing and redemption to a fallen human race. It also presents a picture of humanity that is just as true today as it was then. A picture that is both sobering in what it reveals and yet at the same time a picture that gives hope. A picture that takes us to the ugliest depths of the human soul but there offers hope almost too amazing to believe. And so as we consider this passage of Scripture and what it says to us about humanity, I think what we'll see is that God's grace offers the only way of escape from his certain judgment. I think that's the main idea that we'll see in this passage. God's grace offers the only way of escape from his certain judgment. So before we begin, let's take a moment and pray. Lord, we ask that you would be present with us, Lord. Thank you for your presence through the singing and the worship songs. And Lord, we invite you to have your way in this time as well. Lord, speak to our hearts through your word. Lord, help me to communicate what you want to say through this passage of Scripture. And Lord, through your Spirit, let all of us have eyes to see and ears to hear. Grant us revelation in our hearts of what you want us to get from this, from your word this morning. And so we ask that you would, in this time, Lord, glorify your name, honor the person and work of your Son, Lord, help me to be faithful to your word, and Lord, bless your people through this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me set a little context for our passage today. So if we go back to the beginning of Genesis, God's purpose in creation to have a kingdom for himself where he would have a people that would be his people that would live in his place, under his rule, experiencing his favor and blessing. And that perfect kingdom picture that was there in the garden in the beginning has now been destroyed by the fall. Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden has destroyed God's perfect kingdom picture, and now humanity and all creation have come under God's judgment and curse. And yet in the midst of the devastation and the consequences of this fall of humanity, we see the beginning in Genesis 3.15 of God's promise to make a way to rescue and redeem a fallen human race, that he will one day send one who will crush the head of the serpent who has caused this. It's his promise to make a way to restore his purpose, to have a kingdom for himself, a way to undo, if you will, the effects of sin and the fall. And yet, as this plan begins to unfold, it seems as if it is threatened and in jeopardy at every turn. Last week, we looked at the story of Cain and Abel, and and after the disobedience in the garden, it would seem that Adam and Eve had a renewed faith and trust in God, and so they had two sons, Cain and Abel, and there was hope that one of them might be this promised one who was to come. But then Cain murders his brother Abel, and as a result, he is cursed by God and banished from the community. 
and it appears as if God's plan is defeated. But then Adam and Eve have another son, and his name is Seth, and Seth becomes the hope of this promise being fulfilled. And so when we come to chapter 5, chapter 5 is really a genealogy of Seth's descendants or his line, if you will. But when we look at that chapter, it is not an encouraging picture because what we see is just the spread of evil and sin and its consequences of death. Chapter 5 in Genesis covers 1,700 years of Seth's descendants, and there is the same refrain repeated again and again and again as each one is mentioned, and that refrain is, and he died. And he died. And he died. Death rules over humanity. I mean, these are some of the darkest chapters in the Bible. And yet God's purpose is not defeated because in the midst of this chapter of everybody's death being described, there is one man, one man named Enoch who doesn't meet that fate. It says that Enoch was, he did not die. He was taken up because he walked with God. God's plan is still on the move. And so as we come to the very end of chapter 5, we're introduced to a man named Noah, who is one of Seth's descendants. But as chapter 6 begins, things only seem to be getting worse. So let's read through our text for today, Genesis 6, 1 through 8. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So there are three things we want to consider from this passage of Scripture this morning. And the first one is, that sin has thoroughly and completely corrupted every human heart. Now the first four verses in this chapter are probably the most challenging verses to interpret and understand in all of Moses' writings. I mean, who are these sons of God that are referred to and and who are the Nephilim? And there are many different views on these kind of issues. Some people believe the the sons of God were fallen angels who came down out of their heavenly abode and married human wives. 
Some believe that they were the godly sons of Seth who took wives from among Cain's descendants. Some believe they were demonically empowered kings or rulers. We we just really don't know. And who are these Nephilim then? It's just as mysterious as to who they were. It seems like they were either offspring of these forbidden marriages or perhaps contemporaries that lived during that same time. All we really know about them is that they were mighty warriors of great renown. And to be honest, no one particular view about this seems to really stand above the others on these questions. All of them have advantages and weaknesses in one form or another. And while it might be really fascinating to think about the Nephilim and who these sons of God were, it might be fascinating to kind of figure that out. To be honest, it's probably not all that meaningful to our lives today. And so while we can't know for sure exactly what these verses are describing, what we can know for sure is this. There was something going on where God's boundaries for marriage were being defiled or crossed. And whatever it is, it contributes to the ongoing slide into corruption and depravity of the human race that has been going on since that sin in the garden. And this continuing decay of sin and corruption finally brings us to verse 5 where we see God's sobering assessment of human beings. Let's look at what he says in verse 5. says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, let let us not miss the full impact of God's choice of words in this verse. It says, the wickedness of man was great. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, let, let that sink in. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. See, God is making a point in this passage. This is a statement of the utter and complete corruption of mankind. And notice that this corruption is not just a matter of what people do or say or think. It proceeds from the very core of our being. It is much deeper than that. It proceeds from our hearts. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Gordon Wenham in his commentary on this passage says this. He says, this text asserts that every human thought from its inception is intrinsically evil. I mean, this is the reality of how sin has corrupted the very nature of human beings. And maybe as you hear this, you say, you know, Don, that that really sounds pretty extreme. I mean, it's not that bad, is it? And well, let me explain. It doesn't mean that every thought is as evil as it could be. 
But what it does mean is that every thought fails to meet the standard of God's righteousness and holiness. You see, evil is everything that is self-centered and does not give proper glory to God. Everything that does not honor God as creator and Lord. Every thought that exalts man and his desires above God and his glory is evil in God's sight. And in man's fallen human nature, every intent of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. And that, I mean, that's not how we would think of it, is it? I mean, we, we don't think of ourselves quite that way. I mean, if you've ever used binoculars, I'm sure you've used binoculars at some point. You know what binoculars do, right? They, they take something that is far away that you can't see clearly, that's fuzzy, that's not clear, and you look through the binoculars and focus them in, and it brings that object into clear focus. Well, that's what God is doing in this verse for us. He's bringing the true nature of the human heart that we can't see clearly into crystal clear focus for us. And it is, it is not a pretty sight. And so the question for us is, am I willing to put my face in the cutout of the picture that is painted in this verse? Now perhaps you're tempted to think, well these guys before the flood, I mean they were really bad, I get that. But God wiped them all out and started over with Noah, right? I mean, if we were to look ahead at Genesis 6, verse 9, the verse right after our passage, 6, 9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. I mean, that statement in verse 5, it surely wouldn't describe people now. We've progressed since then. Surely we're not like that now. Why wouldn't be too quick to come to those conclusions. Because if we jump ahead just a little bit further in Genesis to Genesis chapter 8, at the conclusion of the flood story, when Noah and his family are exiting the ark for the first time, and they are the only eight people alive on earth at this point, and so they come out of the ark, and the first thing they do is offer a sacrifice to God. And in Genesis 8, 21, it says this, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living thing, every living creature as I have done. See, the human heart, it has not changed. Jeremiah describes it this way in Jeremiah 17, 9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And if we move forward into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, 10 through 12 says it this way. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even 
one. It's not a flattering picture. It's not a cutout we would particularly like to have our picture taken in. But unless we see that sin has thoroughly and completely corrupted every human heart, we will never accept the grace God offers as the only way of escape from the certain judgment because of it. And that brings me to the second thing we want to look at in this passage today, and that is God's patience and mercy with sin must one day turn to judgment. See, in this Story: God has been patient and merciful with man's sin for over 1,700 years at this point in the Genesis story. He was merciful to Cain and did not judge him immediately as severely as he could have for the murder of Abel. He's been patient and merciful with man over centuries as sin and evil spread. But there comes a point where sin and evil have gone too far. There comes a point where God's patience and mercy turns to judgment, and mankind reaches that point here in Genesis 6. In verse 3, if we look at that, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh for his days shall be 120 years. Now there's two views on what God is saying here with 120 years. One is that God's going to shorten the lifespan of human beings to no more than 120 years. And that could be what he's saying here. It's, it's certainly a legitimate way of looking at it. Because with some few exceptions after the flood, that was the case. The second view says that what God is saying here is it's going to be 120 years before he brings an end to mankind. Now, personally, I would lean a bit more towards that second view because I think it fits the context better here. Because if we look at verses 6 and 7, it says this. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The context seems to be more in line with God's plan to destroy humanity. See, God has been patient and merciful, giving mankind every opportunity to turn from sin and evil. And as God looks down upon the corruption of his greatest creative work, he is grieved and saddened at what he sees. God is pained by sin and its effect on human beings. God is sorry in this moment that he has made man as he looks upon how human sin has twisted and corrupted the human heart. Now, don't, don't misunderstand this. God is not caught by surprise at these events. He's not acknowledging that he made a mistake God is simply responding to the situation in this moment as he sees it. 
You see, God is unchanging in his being, his nature, his purposes, his promises. He doesn't change his mind like a human being does. But he does respond differently to situations as they unfold in time. I mean, we can see that, for example, in the story of Jonah. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he is to preach to Nineveh that God is going to destroy the city in 30 days. And after some convincing, Jonah finally goes, and he does preach that message to Nineveh that God's going to destroy them in 30 days. And that is God's intent at that point. But the Ninevites respond to Jonah's preaching and they turn and repent and turn from their evil ways. And when God sees that as it unfolds in time, he changes what he's going to do and relents from the judgment that he's going to bring. God responds differently to situations as they unfold in time. But he, he does not change in who he is and what his purposes and plans are. And so while God is unchanging, he is deeply and personally affected by his creation. He is not only grieved and saddened by what he sees, but in his holiness, he is righteously indignant towards the sin of man. See, human sin is so vile and offensive to God that he must respond in righteous judgment. We look at verse 3 again. He says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. And the word abide here has the idea that God is going to withdraw his spirit from man, but it also includes this idea that he's no longer going to contend or strive with man in his wickedness. No longer will his mercy and kindness strive with man's sinful heart to restrain evil and wickedness. He's going to withdraw his spirit from him. His spirit, who is the source and sustainer of all life, will be removed. And this implies the coming destruction of all things. And so mankind is given 120 years before this judgment falls. And yet, how merciful and gracious of God that even now, he grants man one more opportunity to repent. If we look at 2 Peter 2.5, as Peter talks about these, the flood and the events leading up to it, he says this in that verse, it says, And if, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And what I want to draw your attention to is that phrase, herald of righteousness. It says Noah was a herald of righteousness. You know what a herald is? A herald is somebody who proclaims a message, right? He's a preacher, in other words. So when Noah, in these 120 years, Noah wasn't just building the ark. He was proclaiming. He was preaching. He was declaring to the people what God was going to do, that God was going to bring judgment on the world, and please turn, turn from your evil ways and repent. Noah was preaching throughout that time. But there would be no repentance. 
And God declares at the end of the 120 years, he will destroy mankind and all living things from the face of the earth. And if we look at verse 7, he says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. And the language here is the idea of like taking a dish rag and just wiping a dish clean. God's just going to wipe humanity off the face of the earth. And because of the corruption of the human heart, God will act to destroy all things. And unlike in Cain's day, this time there will be no mercy to a corrupt human race. This passage shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that while God is extremely merciful and patient with people in their sin, God's righteousness demands that his patience and mercy with sin must one day turn to judgment. But there's one more thing we need to see in this passage, and that is that God's grace is the only hope to escape judgment. See, while this text indicts and condemns every human heart, while it shows us that because of the corruption and sin of our hearts, every human being is on a collision course with the judgment of God, it does not abandon us or leave us there with no hope. Because it concludes with an amazing ray of hope in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And the word favor, it's really the word for grace. In other words, Noah received grace from God. See, grace means we receive unmerited favor from God when we really deserve just the opposite. And we all, including Noah, deserve God's judgment. Noah was not a different kind of human being. His face was found in the cutout picture described in verse 5, just like every one of us. His heart was not an exception. He didn't receive favor or grace from God because he lived a righteous life. I mean, earlier we looked ahead in verse 9 in this chapter where we see Noah described as a righteous man who walked with God in faith. But it would be a mistake to think that he found favor or received grace from God because he lived like that. You see, it's exactly the opposite. There came some point in Noah's life where God intervened in his life. Noah received grace from God that he didn't deserve. That's what grace is. And that grace worked in his life to produce a man who lived a righteous life and walked with God in faith. I mean, think about it. Isn't isn't that the same as our own testimony? I mean, if you sit here today as a Christian or a believer... I mean, is it because God looked at your life and said, oh, I see he's a pretty righteous guy. I I think I'll give grace to save him or her. Well, if that was the case, you would have saved yourself by your own righteous works or deeds, right? There'd be no grace at all. That's not the way it works, is it? If you're like me, there came a point in your life where God intervened in your life. 
And he brought you to trust in him in faith and turn your heart over to Jesus. And when he did, he worked, that grace worked in you to make you into a person who wants to try to live in a way that pleases God and honors him. You see, Noah deserved to die in that flood for his sinful heart just like every other human being. But Noah didn't get what he deserved. Instead, he received grace. He found favor in the eyes of God instead of the judgment he deserved. God granted grace to Noah and purely by his grace saved him from the judgment that was to come. See, God saved Noah because he is faithful to keep his promise to make a way for the corrupting effects of sin to be undone. He's faithful to fulfill his promise to rescue and redeem a people for himself. And Noah's life is the means through which this hope for humanity moves forward. Noah is the hope for the serpent crusher who will one day come. The deliverer who was yet to come, who would undo the effects of the curse of sin and death. But Noah's life, I think it also speaks to us who are here or listening today. See, Noah's life shows us that there is a hope to escape the judgment of God upon sinful humanity. And that hope is only through God's grace. It is only in God's grace that humanity has any chance at all. No one escapes divine judgment except by grace. Because every one of our faces is found in that cutout picture in verse 5. Every intention of the thoughts of our heart was only evil continually. See, every one of us has a corrupt, evil heart that is heading for the terrible reality of God's righteous judgment like a runaway train. And there is nothing we can do to slow that engine down. Only God's grace can rescue us from the coming catastrophe of a collision with God's righteous judgment. And if we try to look within ourselves for something to hope in, if we think we're really not that bad, if we think we can somehow escape by doing good deeds, we fail to see the depth of our problem that is described here, that every intention of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. See, we must look to one thing and one thing only if we will have a hope to escape. And just as was the case with Noah, God, by his grace, must save us from the judgment to come. Because God's grace offers the only way of escape from his certain judgment. And so as Moses writes this passage for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness before entering the promised land, I mean, they would see in this passage that they were God's people purely by his grace. I mean, Moses tells them that in places like Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 7. 
where he's talking about how God's going to drive out the nations before them so that he can give them the promised land. He says there, he says, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. See, God's Moses saying, it's not because of their righteousness. They were no more righteous than these other people. It's not because they were more righteous or anything about them that God had chosen them to be his people. It was purely by an act of grace in his fulfilling his covenant promises to Abraham. And they were to be grateful and thankful for that grace. I mean, they were to worship and love the God who had been so amazingly gracious to them. It was only by God's grace that they would escape the judgment that God was bringing on the nations around them for their wickedness and sin. And they were to walk with God in obedience as his people, ever aware of the grace that had rescued them from that judgment. And so this passage of scripture in Genesis 6, 1 through 8, It's part of the story of God's working out his purposes to save a people for himself. But you know, it also serves another purpose for us in our day as well. It is a type or a foreshadowing, if you will, of a greater reality that is still yet to come. It is to warn us of a far more cataclysmic judgment than the flood that has yet to occur. A judgment for all humanity that will occur at the end of this age when Jesus Christ returns. Jesus himself talks about it in Matthew 24, verses 36 through 39, where he says this. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You see, because every one of our faces is found in the cut-out picture of the human heart described in Genesis 6-5, the only way that our faces won't be found in that judgment scene just described in Matthew 24 is that if we, like Noah, are saved from that judgment by God's grace. And the good news is that grace is available to all who will receive it. 
Because that grace is found in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ is the promised serpent crusher who was to come. Jesus Christ was the Son of God who came into this world and took on human flesh, became a human being. He lived a perfect sinless life, earning a perfect righteousness before God, something that we could never do with our corrupt, sinful hearts. And where our face should be found in the cutout scene of God's judgment because of our sins, for those who will receive it, for those who will turn to Jesus and put their faith and trust in him as their Lord and Savior, he put his face in that picture in our place. And as he hung on that cross, he took the judgment and the curse that we deserved for our corrupt, sinful hearts. He was swept away, so to speak, by the flood of God's wrath and judgment on that cross so that we might not be, so that we might be rescued from that, that we might receive forgiveness for our sins. He suffered and died in our place on that cross that our face might be removed from the picture of that final judgment scene. And he placed our face in the cutout scene of his perfect obedience and righteous standing before God. That God might see our face there and credit to us what he achieved in his perfect life. That we might receive the favor and blessing of God that he earned in his perfect life of obedience. And he rose from the dead as proof that he accomplished all that he came to do in making a way to rescue and save us. That's the grace of God. We receive that grace just like Noah did, by faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us that's exactly the way Noah received it in Hebrews eleven seven, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, when God told Noah what he was going to do, Noah believed God. He trusted in what God said, and he acted on that trust. And that became the basis. His faith became the basis of God granting him a righteousness. And we too must believe what God says to us as how we can escape his judgment that is to come. And we must turn from ignoring God or trusting in ourselves and what we can do to be right with God. We must abandon every other thing we've put our hope in to escape that final day of judgment. We must turn from our sinful way of living and turn to God to seek to live, to honor and please Him. And we must put our faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ as the only one who can save us. I can have the worship team come and join me. And for most of us here today, 
I mean, if we sit here this morning as one of those who has done that, I mean, how grateful and thankful we should be that God, by his amazing grace, even though our face is found in the cut-out picture of a corrupt, evil heart, where every intent of the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually, that God, by his grace, has removed our face from that scene of final judgment that we deserve. And he's placed it in the picture of those who are righteous by faith and who will live with him in his kingdom forever. I mean, that's the amazing grace of God. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, put yourself in the shoes of Noah and his family. I mean, just imagine after all that has gone through and you've built the ark and the flood has come and and then that moment when finally the flood is over and the door opens and you and your family walk out. I mean, can can you imagine what that moment have been like as you look around and you realize what God has rescued you and saved you from? I mean, it's no wonder the first thing they did was build an altar and offer a sacrifice to God. I mean, can you imagine how thankful and grateful they were in that moment? And how much more thankful and grateful should we be that God has rescued us from a far worse, a far greater eternal judgment by his grace. And if you sit here this morning and, or you're listening in and you've, you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I just want to invite you this morning to do that. Receive this grace that is offered freely to you as a gift. Don't stay on board that runaway train that is heading out of control towards that final collision with God's judgment. You can choose today which cutout picture your face will be found in when Jesus comes one day to settle accounts with every human being. Will it be the picture of his holy judgment that must be poured out on all sin? Or will it be his forgiveness and his perfect righteousness that has been given to you by faith in him? See, God's grace available in Jesus Christ is the only thing that can save you from that day. Because God's grace offers the only way of escape from his certain judgment. Let's stand together and close with this song.